TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Welcome to Memphis Musicology, the official podcast of the Memphis Rock and Soul Museum. As always, I'm your host, Ezra Wheeler. So this week on the show, we're going to be talking about the legendary duo of Sam and Dave, that group that gave us two of the most iconic songs of the 20th century in Soul Man and Hold On, I'm Coming, and whose sweaty, sanctified soul influenced everyone from the Rolling Stones to Bruce Springsteen to Aretha Franklin. But despite their influence, I kind of... I'm not sure if people are really aware of the depth of their legacy or even that they're the ones responsible for the two songs I named. And in that respect, I kind of think of them in terms of someone like Bill Withers or Wilson Pickett, who I'm not going to say they're without name recognition, but people may be surprised to, you know, just learn the full depth of their catalogs. Anyway, um, if you are familiar with Sam and Dave, I'm still hoping you'll learn something new today, but... Before we get into that, I'm really excited to introduce you to another dynamic duo of Memphis Soul and R&B. So I'm joined today by the group The Privilege, which is made up of twin brothers Christian and Christopher Underwood, who are respectfully to my left and right. Thank you guys for coming on. Thank you for having us. So we were just talking. We haven't really officially met until moments ago, but I did see you guys play with uh, Taliba Sophia. What was that? A couple weeks ago? Yeah. Part of her backing band, which was incredible she blew my mind y'all blew my mind so thank you thank thanks you thank to you. that um and then of course you've been on tour with healy as well which you want to jump in with the, with the big news yeah uh we're actually going on tour with him uh in july he actually uh will be announcing it uh next week so Ex- yeah. well it would be exclusive but this will probably take a week to come out so <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah. maybe we can uh drop it on the same day before mm-hmm. the tour though uh we put, we're playing a, fiz- a festival out in oakland called uh blurry vision fest so you saw something about that uh Very with cool. you know scissors headlining it friday night amigos are headlining saturday night the night we play that's uh, huge man yeah it's gonna be pretty cool have you yeah. done a festival before I played Bill Street Music Fest last year, but uh, that counts. No. But this, yeah, no. yeah, mm-hmm. dig that. <laughs> That's what's up. So, um, before we get into the privilege, I do want to talk a little bit about how you guys first got into music. And I know you both. Who plays drums and who plays bass? Christopher plays drums. Okay, and, and Christian plays bass. So yeah, what got you into music, and then why rhythm instruments? If if there was any particular reason. Well, so uh, I remember a long time ago when we were little. I remember walking in to my uh, parents' room, and my dad had a uh, Guitar Center magazine, and I walked over to him. He was flipping through it, and when I saw the drums, I just pointed at it, <laughs> and then next thing I knew, that Christmas, I had a drum set. So it was instinctive. Yeah. You just knew. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I da- well, I, like, uh, our dad is a musician. Uh, guitar player? Yeah, yeah. Well, guitar player, bass player, uh yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it, just, it just music just runs deep in uh, our family. Like our uncles are musicians. Like, uh, what do they play? What kind of music? Well, like uh, the, our uncle that's closest to our dad is a guitar player and a bass player, um, and he has you know he has a, a music room full of instruments and stuff like that. But so steeped uh, in it, you know, being in Memphis and the, you know just family come from church and playing in church and stuff like that. So it's a classic story. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Dig that. So last fall, you guys released your debut debut single called What You're Missing, which yeah. was really a breath of fresh air of him being on. I'm excited by a lot of the music in Memphis, but this was a lane I feel like hasn't been occupied properly. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. That's Thanks. the truth. so intentional. Yeah. It was so <laughs> intentional. Good, good. And I... Y'all are better at explaining to or hell we could play the song. That's probably the best uh best way to, to describe it. But yeah, there's a mixture of classic soul music, sixties, seventies, but also I don't know if Neo Soul's a dated term, but D'Angelo. There's yeah. there's a little yeah. D'Angelo in it. And I mm-hmm. Did, yeah, did yeah. I get it right? Yeah, yeah you got it right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there Nailed you go. it on the head. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Well, Gil, if I, we'll get into the song and the process, but mm-hmm. can we can we drop that real quick? So this is the privilege with the song "What You're Missing." Wonderful stuff. So, yeah, let me know a little bit about that track, if there's anything particular we need to know, or just uh, kind of interested in your songwriting process in general, and what so, would you all do do, what you maybe don't do. Yeah, <laughs> so uh, I guess with each song, it kind of, well, it's kind of consistent. Um, this song in particular uh, started with the bass line, uh, well, the music did, and, uh, you know, I worked the progression. Uh, from a Joe Tech song, yeah, uh, the doo 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 doo. I took that from uh, that song gotcha. and just you know put that into the cool. baseline. Mm-hmm. And um, Chris had some lyrics uh, that he had written. Mm-hmm. I guess I mean it was it was just something. It was written. just something he had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I was listening to the you know the the progression and the beat in my head, and then he read the lyrics and I kind of put the melody to the lyrics. Um, and then we had a concept for, uh, the chorus mm-hmm. and he wrote the chorus, yeah. uh, at vacation, so at vacation Bible school, we were playing, <laughs> uh, we were playing for kids, you know, playing drums and bass behind kids and stuff. And, uh, after we got done, he just came right to me after we went in the back, I was like, okay, yep, there we go. Not a typical place for, yeah, for right, song yeah. and writing inspiration, but, yeah. but take I, it where you can get it, right? Yeah, right. Like, and and you're doing the singing. Yeah, gotcha. Mm-hmm. Wonderful stuff, guys. So um, let's talk about the name, the privilege. I'm sure that's one you get a lot. But 
I don't know. There's something uh, I like it. I like it a lot. And then for you, you listening, it you. is P R V L G. Yeah. So we have uh, yeah. fuck vowels. <laughs> <laughs> so so a fr- we have to credit a friend of ours for the spelling. Gotcha. Uh, his yeah. name is Ben Calicott, very near and dear to us, mm. and uh, he is the one responsible. The master, well, he did well. Yeah. Well done, Bill. We have uh, two different two different stories about the, the how the name came about, but uh, mine is a very simple uh, story. I was we we needed a name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and good starting point. <laughs> and I, I um, was trying to find a name that was really cool because I wanted a name that uh, I couldn't have. It was called the Vanguard, mm. and I was just trying to uh, recreate that. Gotcha, gotcha. And uh, the privilege came out. It's the the ring. I can yeah, dig it. Yeah. I can dig it. Mm. So. Uh, Oh, did you have your own story? Were you? Well, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I don't really Jump have a. That. I just kind of put the meaning behind sure. it, uh, why it makes sense for us to be named the privilege. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you kind of take a look at our, at our act, you know, a bass player and a drummer, they're twins. They write and sing their own music, and they're the front men. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I, I get where you're going. Yeah, a yeah, privilege yeah. means a rare opportunity, right? That's you right. have never seen any. I don't think I've ever seen. I certainly like don't have you know that yeah. right. So, uh, I mean, I think it kind of. Hey, that works. Yeah, mm-hmm. a nice ring and a nice story. There you mm-hmm. go. Yeah. Perfect. So, what are we getting next, guys? We, we've got the killer single, but uh, yeah, I'm thirsty for something else. You're thirsty. Oh my gosh, <laughs> <laughs> we've been uh, we've been working on this. Uh, we have a project coming out. Good, good. Some point this year. Uh, I don't want to even sure, get, but um, it's, yeah, it's we've been a very long yeah. process. Yeah. Um, God, like we we wanted to still like be warm outside, just because the nature of our music or this particular project is more up, mm-hmm. right? Sure, so it just makes more sense. To yeah, it's good barbecue. Uh huh. Barbecue music. Um, but yeah, we've been working hard on an album. Uh, two for, years for two years. Now. Is that right? And there, there, are, that's there's a reason why I don't think I need to get into mm-hmm. all of that. But um, yeah, it's been a it's been a process, and it's it's a masterpiece. I like to call there it. There you go. Yeah. But we see the light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely, mm-hmm. definitely. All the it's all done tracking. It's in mixing now. Gotcha. Where'd uh, you guys record? At the stove. You know the Ben Jonas guy. Yeah, yeah. I, do I know, know that. everybody's heard doing... of Ben Jonas. But well, that's—I got a music business degree from him. Gotcha. Uh, he was my professor and my advisor, and was well, gracious. He's one enough. of our board members, so uh, really? shout out to Ben Yonis. And shout, shout out to Ben, ben <laughs> And uh, he let us record in his studio. Very cool. Uh, and we are very grateful and blessed to have been able to record our first project and it be like this good. I'm not gonna right. lie, like this project. I know you haven't heard it yet. Got to be excited. But for it to be like a debut project, it's yeah, pretty. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty. Uh, that's good. awesome. Yeah, it's good. And. Uh, do you have a band other than you, or do you have studio musicians? Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. So we have a family. Yeah. <laughs> so when you tour, you got your. Is it the same studio musicians? Yeah. yeah. Word up. So we can. So um, the we can perform in in different ways, right? So we can just do the two of us, mm-hmm. right? Like I can hold it down melodically on the my instrument. Sure. Uh, actually, I'm having a bass built right now that I'll actually be a MIDI controller as well. Oh, very cool. And so, like, you know what that'll mean. So, right, right, right. Um, so we'll be able to do just the, just the privilege, right? Just the two of us. And then we'll also tour with... Need a Richard, bigger sound. Yeah, mm-hmm. the band. Got that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we're excited, man. Um, 
any upcoming shows? I know, so, what was it, June 9th? June 9th. We're pl- yeah, we're playing a, a festival, I guess a local festival. It is okay. a festival. I right? didn't realize. Uh, I think yeah. she said it was some type of, or maybe not. But um, yeah, The Privilege is playing that on June 9th. Uh, I don't know the, where off the top of my head. Um, we're playing with Healy in Oakland next or later next week. Weekend. Next weekend gotcha. in Oakland at the Blue Vision That's Festival. The, okay. Yeah. Um, we we're not really playing that much just because we want to get this project out. Fair enough. Um, so we just we really want to kind of lay low until you know yeah. we have something to Big show time. people. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but you can follow us on Instagram. That was the like that. that was the next question. <laughs> yeah. Hey, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. drop it all on them. Yeah, uh, but so on all our shows on ah, excuse me on all of our socials, you can follow us at the p r v l g on Instagram. There is a underscore uh, underscore underscore, underscore um, between the and privilege on Facebook. You. You can just type in the privilege and, I mean, we have a picture and we'll show up. Yeah. Uh, we have a website. Subscribe to our email list on theprivilege.com. We will be blasting, not blasting, but, you know, letting you guys know when uh, stuff, stuff is happening. There you yeah. go. And um, we, uh, we just recently added you guys to the Memphis Music Hall of Fame's Yeah, I saw, to watch that. I saw yeah. that. Looks very good. So Thank if you, so you want to see... Uh, pretty much the same information in a different <laughs> format <laughs> then be sure to go to the Memphis Music Hall of Fame. Yes, yes. <laughs> I, well, I, need to, I need to speak to Tony. I haven't seen Tony. Oh, uh, uh, you know Tony. Yeah, 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 I know Tony. Yeah. So I need to talk She's, to him. There you go. I'll, tell, I'll send you your cards. Okay. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for coming. Let uh, Be sure to let me know when the album is coming yes, into fruition yes, and we'll have you back on or flip a few tracks or yeah, all yeah. that good stuff. All right. Thank, thank you so much. Thank, thank you, guys. You don't So that was Sam and Dave with their 1966 track, You Don't Know Like I Know, which was the very first of what became 10 consecutive top 20 hits during the 1960s. But long before they were making hit soul records, Sam and Sam Moore and Dave Prater were immersed in music of a different sort. So Sam Moore, who was born in Miami in 1935, he cut his teeth singing gospel with groups like the Gales and the Melanaires, while Dave Prater, who was born over in Georgia came up in his brother's gospel group called the Sensational Hummingbirds, who ended up being based in Miami. So at the same time as uh, the men were, you know, into the big end of the gospel scene, they were also both big fans of early soul pioneers like Sam Cooke and Jackie Wilson, um, each of whom will make a cameo in just a quick second. And they each independently kind of developed a singing style that blended their influences of gospel and soul. So anyway, by the Mid-1950s, both men had kind of started moving over into the secular market and um, pursuing something 
more in the soul or pop genre rather than gospel. And actually in 1957, uh, the reigning king of soul, Sam Cooke, he actually departed from his group, the Soul Stirrers, and none other than our boy Sam Moore was tapped as his replacement. So, you know, you might think that the, um, the chance to replace your idol in a popular group would be appealing, but Sam Moore says that he essentially chickened out and instead to go to a concert by, yep, Jackie Wilson. So he says, quote, he was singing and winking and blinking and and his gyrating body. I saw women screaming and I said, now that's what I want to do. Sam recalled later. So the soul stirs, as you might imagine, did not wait around for Sam and uh, left on for other pastures while Sam stayed behind in Miami. So in Miami, he started working as a talent show host at a nightclub called the King of Hearts. And as the story goes, it was at the King of Hearts where Sam was working as the host. Uh, when a sheepish man named Dave Prater arrived at the club, apparently still wearing his baker's clothes from his day job. So Dave took the stage uh, to take part in the amateur contest and apparently began singing a Jackie Wilson song. Yes, for real, Jackie Wilson again. And when he began struggling to remember the words, couldn't remember the lyrics to the Jackie Wilson song, Sam, the host, volunteered to stand near him and feed him some of the lines. So as he was uh, lending Dave a hand, Sam apparently stumbled, sent the mic falling towards the ground. Dave leans down to catch the microphone. Sam leans down to catch Dave, and they both come up together sharing a mic and singing. So... Once again, that is Sam Moore's telling of the story, so it may be smart to take that with a grain of salt, but uh, damn if it's not a good origin story. So whether myth-making or not, I'm not sure, but I do know for a fact that Sam Moore and Dave Prater did decide to become a group after that fateful meeting, and pretty much from the very beginning, the two seemed to make an ideal team. Um, for one, like I said, they had similar backgrounds and influences, which meant they were more or less on the same page musically especially their shared love of the call-and-response style of singing, which would popular in the church. But perhaps more importantly, their voices were, were really what uh, complemented each other so well and kind of formed a perfect contrast. Sam Moore, of course, had that unearthly high tenor, while Dave sported a more deepy, deeper baritone voice. Um, I found a quote from Bruce Springsteen that I thought was pretty great. He said, Quote, Sam was the heavens, his voice was almost not human, but Dave rooted their music in the dirt and in the earth. So there you go, a little more poetic than I was able to muster. Anyway, Sam and Dave, they uh, formed the group, they began honing their act in the act in the nightclubs of Miami, and although they were getting a lot of practice, they were really careful not to over-curate their act. Um, as Sam Moore said, we were electrifying because we had no act. All we did was go out there and sing and preach and scream. We didn't have no steps like the Four Tops or the Temptations. So before long, the duo were eventually discovered um, at that same nightclub where they had met the King of Hearts, and they were signed to Miami's Marlin Records. So on Marlin, they released a handful of fairly lackluster singles. Um, not that notable, but except for, I guess, couple little things dave prater was actually the lead singer back then and number two believe it or not jackie wilson sang on some of their background vocals so there's old jackie again anyway i digress so uh 
Sam and Dave were eventually introduced to Atlantic Records' Jerry Wexler, the the legendary Jerry Wexler, and he signed them to a deal with Atlantic, but wisely chose to ship the duo down south to Stax Records. Um, he just, I think, intuitively believed that they'd feel more at home there. And, of course, history shows that he wasn't wrong in the end, but apparently when the duo first arrived at Stax, they weren't so convinced it had been the right move for them. Um Sam Moore later recalled, when I found out that during the day, Stax owner Jim Stewart works at the bank and at night he plays country music, oh my God, the tears started rolling down my face. I looked at Dave and said, how could Atlanta do this to us? How could they? However, things thankfully got uh, much better for the duo when Sam and Dave began working closely with MG's guitarist Steve Cropper, who <clears throat> had a big hand in writing some of their earlier songs, but most importantly, by far, was the partnership that they formed with the songwriting team of David Porter and Isaac Hayes. Um, that partnership really set things into motion and was pretty much crucial to their future success. So not only did David Porter and Isaac Hayes write and produce much of their uh, Sam and Dave's earlier catalog, including all their biggest hits, <clears throat> but they also had a really big hand in kind of redefining the group's not only their sound, but their overall aesthetic. So I mentioned earlier that Sam and Dave had kind of prided themselves on not being as polished as acts like the Temptations, but to the, state, to the team at Stax, they still had a bit too much sheen. Um, in fact, the duo said that David Porter admonished them for trying to compete with Motown. So instead of embracing, embracing the polished pop sounds of Detroit or Philadelphia, Hayes and Porter really encouraged the group to embrace that raw energy that had been present in their live shows and to leave the crooning for, I don't know, someone like Jackie Wilson, perhaps. So they also, uh, David Porter and Isaac Hayes also arranged the song so that Sam was the lead vocalist rather than Dave, which as I mentioned earlier, was not the case in earlier songs. So those two were really, uh, once again, instrumental in kind of laying out the, the groundwork for Sam and Dave. Anyway, that harmony between the four men, uh, like I said, crucial. And Sam Moore said, quote, that was chemistry. Sam and Dave, Hayes and Porter. Just like the chemistry between Barry Gordy and Motown and between Michael Jackson and Quincy Jones. So not only did Sam and Dave have their greatest writing song, or excuse me, greatest songwriting duo in soul music history, but they also, as so many groups at Stax did, had the backing of Booker T and the MGs. So... Earlier on in the career, the music gods were smiling down on them. Anyway, the group scored their first hit with the song You Don't Know Like I Know, which we heard at the top. Um, but in 1966, a little later on that year, they released a track that would not only really establish the group's brand, but which was destined to become a modern classic. That song, Hold On, I'm Coming, took the country by storm and quickly shot to number one on the R&B charts, which suggested, and I think number two on the overall charts, which really suggested that the group had that crossover appeal necessary to become, you know, genuine superstars. You got to remember in this era, black artists still struggle to resonate with mass white audiences. So if you could get a number two or number one record in the country, that, that was a pretty big deal back then, especially for soul music, which was just not as uh, commercially viable necessarily. Also, their debut album of the same name was released not long after, and it actually held on to number one for 19 weeks, which is 
hugely impressive for them, but it also really uh, proved to be the breakthrough for Stax's album sales, and it pretty much kickstarted the label's golden age. So that Hold On, I'm Coming album, big deal for several reasons. Anyway, before we take a listen to Hold On, I'm Coming, I do think it's worth learning a little bit about that song's unusual origins, uh, especially in terms of the songwriting. So I'm going to play a clip right now of Isaac Hayes explaining how he and David Porter first conceived of that song. And this is a clip from the Conan O'Brien show back in 1994. Because that, that's a song that just won't go away. I mean, uh, it's, it's a legendary song. Well, what happened was um, Stax Records, the, the physical building, was an old movie theater. And um, in the corner, nothing was changed, actually. In the corner of the building was, 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 the, uh, was the John, right? And I was, David and I were working one evening on the piano, I'm, you know, just playing some grooves and trying to come up with something. He said, man, I got to go to the John. Let's go right on, you know. <laughs> and um, while he was gone, I, I, I struck something. I said, wow, this is hip, man. I said, and it looked like it was taking him forever, you know. I said, hey, David, come on, man, come on, I got something. He said, hold on, I'm coming. <laughs> and, uh, and at that time, he said, that's it, that's it. And he came out of the restroom with his pants down. <laughs> I got it, I got it, I got it. So that's how the song was <laughs> That's done. how great music is born, yeah. Hey, that was it. Now, what a- so despite the fact that Hold On, I'm Coming was a massive hit, I found out that it was not without its controversies, uh, as silly as they may seem now. So because of its title, Hold On, I'm Coming, people, dirty-minded people, read too much into it, and it was actually banned from several radio stations, which ended up prompting label owner Jim Stewart to have to re-release the song with the name Hold On, I'm A-Comin'. The A makes all the difference. And that, that title, Hold On, I'm A-Comin', is actually, pres- uh, that's the one present on the vast majority of the original U.S. singles. So if you find one that says, if you find some vinyl that says, Hold On, I'm Coming," snag it up. Anyway, I don't think you'll, uh, we're about to listen to the track, and I don't think you'll need my help, but what the heck, I'll give it to you anyway. So I just want to note that Sam Moore is going to sing first on this track, Dave Prater sings second, and then the two tackle the chorus together, just so you know who's who. Let's take a listen. So after the release of Hold On, I'm Coming, Sam and Dave really continued to have a stellar year and released a string of uh, follow-up singles, including You Don't Know Like I Know, 
said I wasn't going to tell nobody. You got me humming and the ballad when something is wrong with my baby. Once again, like I said, kind of like that. Even if you don't know their song names, pull them up, listen to them. Guarantee you know at least most of them. Just a, like I said, string of amazing hits. And everybody was on. Songwriting, the band, Steve Cropper, I think is as good on Sam and Dave records as anything. But anyway, um, at the same time as they were just pumping out hits, the group also began to tour um, on the strength of these these hits. And before long, apparently, their, their live act had really become their calling card. Um, found several write-ups, publications like Time Magazine, wrote glowing reviews of the group's performances. Um, Rolling Stone. I found in the book Nowhere to Run, the story of soul music. Uh, author Gary Hershey writes, quote, they carried red suits, white suits, three-piece three piece lime green suits, all with matching patent boots and coordinated silk hankies, woefully inadequate to, do it, to absorb a soul man's nightly outpourings. Both Sam and Dave talk a lot about sweat. To Dave, it's proof that he's worked for his pay. For Sam, it's essential, almost mystical. He says he cannot work without it. And then he quotes Sam as saying, Unless my body reaches a certain temperature and starts to liquefy, I just don't feel right without it. So anyway, uh, author Robert Gordon, he kind of backs up this assertment, and he wrote, quote, They perform nearly 300 shows a year, carrying a band that would soon grow to 16 pieces, mostly horn players, whose energetic moves with their gleaming instruments became solar flares radiating from the two stars. They were widely known as the greatest live act of all time. So, as uh, powerful as those words are, I really don't think anything does a better job of illustrating just the power of Sam and Dave live, um, more than the fear that they instilled in none other than Otis Redding, who, of course, is considered easily one of the most legendary live performers ever, but they put the heebie-jeebies in Otis. So, as label mates, Sam and Dave joined Otis Redding during that Stacks review of Europe and were actually billed as his opening act, um, simply because he was the bigger star at the time. So apparently the European crowds just went ballistic during Sam and Dave's sets and to the point where actually several of their performances had to be shut down early by security just simply to calm the crowds down because they were getting too unwieldy. So Sam Moore said, we came, we came on and broke out. Whoa, we were like mad animals. We went at them singing and sweating and twisting and turning and spinning and, 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 and the European people went crazy. They just went crazy. So I also want to listen to a quick clip. Uh, this is Stax exec Al Bell and trumpeter Wayne Jackson talking about that particular tour. So Sam and Dave came in with a different sound. And their sound was more uh, gospel because of the harmonies, the melodies, and the way Isaac and David wrote for them. And, and the way they performed those songs. You don't know like I know what that woman has done for me. The perfect stage show, in my mind, was what we took to Europe. So we went in, Otis headlining, Sam and Dave just before Otis. They had to get a mop out there to get some of their blood and guts up off the stage. I mean, they were just slopping in their own sweat. You know, their clothes were wringing wet. We were wringing wet. It was so hot until Otis uh, uh, had come out of his dressing room. And Otis would be standing over there 
on the side, watch it. And you can hear just like a thoroughbred racehorse waiting for the bell. And Sam and Dave, they had everybody just in a pandemonium. I mean, they would, they'd faint. One of them would just faint and fall out and come out, drag him off stage. And then Sam would say, good night. Dave would come back out and head start again. Down in the audience, back and forth. And it was a hell of a show. And the whole time, Otis was standing over with, looking like, yeah, you're trying to show me up, but I'm going to show you something. When Sam and Dave finished, Otis Redding broke from behind that stage out and grabbed the microphone, and he started going from one end of the stage to the other end of the stage. I, just, I couldn't believe what was going on, and it was, gotcha, 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 gotcha. I mean, just the energy that I had never seen before. So just to kind of reiterate that same point, I, I also found a great quote from Booker T and the MG's drummer, Al Jackson Jr., who said, talking about Otis Redding, quote, he's seeing that reception that Sam and Dave is getting, and he ain't digging this at all. When the host says Otis Redding, I go, one, two, three, and Otis transformed. I didn't believe it. When he hit that stage, he had a smile on his face, and he was there. Oh, man, here I am. He grabbed that mic, and that's all he'd do for the whole 45 minutes was prowl that stage. That son of a bitch was all man. So, despite the benefits that the competition uh, with Sam and Dave apparently had for Otis, he was still reported to mutter once after a concert, quote, I never want to have to follow those motherfuckers again. Quite the endorsement, I'd say. So just to give you a taste of how dynamic these performances really were, um, I do want to listen to a bit of one of their live shows from this era, but of course, you are without visual because this is a audio media. So go to YouTube, check it out to get the full brunt of the power. But it is still, I think, worth listening to. So we're going to listen to the track you don't know like I know, live in Europe from 1967. So now that they had uh, earned the reputation of Double Dynamite and the Sultans of Sweat after that 1967 European tour, expectations really became pretty high for Sam and Dave and, you know, what they would do next. But true to form, the men did not disappoint. And that fall, 
the group released a song called Yep, Soul Man. You can hear it here in the background a bit. So, uh, of course, Soul Man would really just blow the doors open for soul culture to go kind of straight into the mainstream. And like the previous smash hit, Soul Man was written by the team of Porter and Hayes, who, it seems during this time, were just able to pull iconic tunes out of thin air. And they were just really hitting their stride. So in an interview, Isaac Hayes explained how the song had come about and said, quote, Soul Man was written when there was a lot of racial unrest in this country. There was uprisings in various cities, people burning buildings, Watts, Detroit. So I was watching TV and one of the news commenters said, if the black businesses write soul on the building, the rioters will bypass it. And I thought about the night of the Passover in the Bible, blood of the lamb on the door, the firstborn is spared. And I realized the word soul keeps them from burning up the establishments. Wow. Soul. Soul. Soul man. David, I got one. So we just started working. So the song was released in August of 1967. And within a month of its release, it was uh, once again another chart topper. Um, Rolling Stone magazine wrote at the time, Quote, when Soul Man becomes a national number one record, it indicates that a much more earthy, low-down kind of soul is beginning to get to white America. And sure enough, it was. Um, I think it's also notable that Soul Man became the very first hit song that contained the word soul in it. And it was also the very first instance of the word soul and man ever being put together. So they really coined a pretty influential uh, uh, term there. And in the years since, of course, it's become recognized as one of the most influential songs of the 20th century. It's been given that credit by the Grammy Hall of Fame, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, RIAA's Songs of the Century, Best Songs Ever on Rolling Stone, Pitchfork's Top Songs of the 60s, on and on and on. Just, a, like I said, a true icon. So that being said, I do realize that the song is pretty dang ubiquitous and maybe even overplayed, but. Uh, I do think it retains some magic if you try to listen with fresh ears. So, as far, like I said earlier, Steve Cropper's guitar playing. I think the way he opens this track, it's just, it's good stuff. Um, and I actually read that he used a Zippo lighter in place of a pick on this song. Just as a little fun trivia. Anyway, it is a classic for a reason, so let's take a listen. Without further ado, this is Sam and Dave with Soul Man.
So following the release of Soul Man, uh, Sam and Dave continued hit, coming out with hit songs, hit records. Soon after, they released their Soul Man LP, which was another smash hit, released the hit single Thank You. But sadly, even though they were just humming right along, the good times at Stax came to an end at the same time as the distribution deal between Stax and Atlantic came to an end. So... When Stax and Atlantic parted ways, the duo were sent packing back to Atlantic, and uh, after only free, four, or excuse me, four brief years in Memphis, they had certainly left a immensely successful track record. Anyway, before we get on with the story, I, I do guess it's time to expose the ugly underbelly of this uh, of this tale of what, a story that probably up to this uh, point seemed. Like a string of unending good luck, but the fact of the matter is, is that Sam Moore and Dave Prater truly, truly hated one another. <laughs> and at the height of their popularity, Sam actually—this is—it's a bit weird. A lot of Sam's writings, but here's what Sam had to say um, about his relationship with Dave. "Quote: I took advantage. I took advantage of Dave there because I felt there was a weakness in him. I thrived on that weakness." Years later, Dave would say aloud that I, that I felt like I was better than him. Naturally, I denied it, but when you look back, it was true. So, one of the things I find uh, tragic yet interesting about this aspect of Sam and Dave's story, and I actually don't just mean the, the soured relationship, but particularly the way that Dave was kind of intentionally undermined, is kind of the way it still resonates today, I think. You may have noticed that all of the quotes I read uh, so far are from Sam Moore, simply because Dave rarely ever spoke or was allowed to speak. And you can even watch the interview, I believe, with the Finnish reporter, where poor old Dave tries to get in and it's just steamrolled, essentially. So while it's undeniable that uh, Sam, I think, was the star of the show, as Stax publicist Danny Parker told the Oxford American, quote, People needed to know that there really was a Dave. It is no surprise that Sam always surfaced in the spotlight and that Dave seemed to have been hidden in the shadows. That was a difference in their personalities. Sam was the showman and he needed the spotlight. It fueled him. On the other hand, Dave was very quiet. You might read that as passive, but I think Dave just chose to be more reserved. Um, and songwriter David Porter, who had helped write so many of those hits, he backed up this assessment by saying, Quote, Dave knew how to make what he did complement the effectiveness of what Sam would do. There was a uniqueness in Dave's flavor that made Sam come off better. But before uh, you turn on Sam Moore as the bad guy, I think it should be mentioned that old Dave Prater also had some of his own demons. Um, by the late 1960s, early 70s, both men were really struggling with apparently extremely heavy drug use. Um, and... Also, just the other excesses of superstardom, you know, and all that came with it. Um, that abuse of drugs and alcohol and et cetera really came to a head in December of 1969. So that December, after attending a concert with his girlfriend, Dave Prater apparently became overcome with jealousy. And when they returned home, he grabbed his gun and shot his girlfriend in the head. Thankfully, she lived, but uh, Sam Moore says that that was the moment that he and Dave's relationship finally came to a conclusive end. After the shooting, uh, Sam Clay's same clams. He, excuse me, 
Sam claims he told Dave, quote, I'll sing with you, man, okay? I'll sing with you, but I shall not ever, ever again speak to you. And believe it or not, according to most sources, Moore held to his word, and the two rarely, if ever, spoke again. The surprising thing is, is they did not break up. So despite the extreme rift, they returned to the studio in 1970 for the very first time since leaving Stax, but by all accounts, the magic was pretty much gone. Um, as legendary producer Jerry Wexler said, and he is a legend, he wrote, or he said, quote, we just made some shit-ass records with them. I never really got into their sensibilities as a producer. So despite never reaching the top of the charts again, uh, Sam and Dave continued to tour, although their toxic relationship caused many problems, as you might expect, and they broke up frequently throughout the 1970s. Um, actually, I pulled out this quote just because it, it seemed like this uh, kind of sad recognition of his fate. Dave Prater tried to go solo once in the early 70s. And when the group got, to be, got back together, he said, when you're by yourself, sometimes you look up in the sky for that other voice and it ain't there. So I think, he, I, I think there was something important about being part of a duo for, for Dave Prater that maybe allowed him to get walked over a little bit. But anyway, that quote really kind of touched me. So in any way, 1979, um, Sam and Dave, they're doing little rinky-dink shows, nostalgia tours, you know, the, you know how it goes. Um, but then they got an unexpected boost from none other than Mr. Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi from SNL, uh, who introduced the characters, the Blues Brothers. And for anyone who's seen Sam and Dave live, I think it becomes immediately clear who the biggest inspiration had been for those characters and... If there were any doubts about that, they should have been quelled by the fact that the satirical duo performed not only Soul Man, but also Hold On, I'm Coming and Soothe Me as well. And Sam and Dave actually performed on SNL during this time. So that newfound attention, um, after maybe a decade or so out of the spotlight, really kind of reinvigorated the group. They went on tour with The Clash, believe it or not. Um, like I said, performed on SNL. They were in the Palm or Paul Simon film, One Trick Pony. But unfortunately, the good times were, were pretty short-lived. So on New Year's Eve of 1981, the duo performed a concert in San Francisco. And when it ended, apparently they walked off stage and never spoke or saw each other again. So in 1982, the following, or <laughs> the following day, I guess, because <laughs> it's New Year's, Dave Prater formed a, a new Sam and Dave, this time with a man named Sam Daniels. He went on tour with him for several years, but by this point, they were more or less of a tribute act. Anyway, Sam also preferred, pursued a solo career, but neither, you know, neither men were really able to get back on their feet, so to speak. We're still dealing with drug issues at this time. Anyway, in April of 1988, Dave Prater... Um, went to Atlanta to perform at a Stax reunion show that saw him reunite with old label mates and creative partners like Isaac Hayes, William Bell, and Rufus Thomas. He performed with the new Sam, and after his performance, apparently all his old friends gathered around backstage to tell him how great he sounded and, you know, give him his, their regards on his long career. But uh, according to one of the trumpet players who was present, who had actually been on tour with Sam and Dave back in the day, said when... After everybody gave him his regard, Sam, uh, or excuse me, Dave just broke down crying. He said, quote, 
Everybody was telling him how good he sounded, and he just lost it, man. He couldn't take it. So after getting that this compliment, for whatever reason, I think there's several hot takes on, on this instance. And everyone there seemed to think it was important, whether it was he missing Sam, was he finally getting the recognition he had never gotten, who knows. But Dave stood up, walked away, didn't really say bye to anybody, and just six days later, Dave Prater would die in a car crash on the way to visit his mother. So quite a sad ending. Um, years later, when Sam Moore was asked to reflect on his longtime partner's death, Sam Moore replied, quote, when Dave killed himself, which is how I look at what happened, I never cried, I never mourned, and I'm not even sure why. So when Dave Prater was buried in New Jersey, his gravestone read Soul Man, and it had the description, you were always on my mind, which was a line from his favorite song by Willie Nelson. Anyway, before we wrap things up, let's listen to one more Sam and Dave classic. This is the duo with their 1966 ballad, When Something Is Wrong With My Baby. Uh, one of my favorite tracks and one that author Rob Bowman called, quote, one of the most sublime records in soul music's history. When something is wrong with my baby enjoyed the the triumphant yet tragic tale of Sam and Dave uh, the group that I think will probably go down in history as the greatest soul duo of all time anyway before we move on as always I'd like to thank the good folks at Arts Memphis and the Genium Foundation for their support of this show if you haven't already please subscribe to Memphis Musicology on iTunes Stitcher or wherever you get your podcast and if you have subscribed be sure to rate and review the show as well it really helps us also, before we move on, I'd like to do a little quick promotion real quick. Um, if you do not know, the Rock and Soul Museum has recently started uh, sponsoring a weekly Memphis music trivia contest, which is being held every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. at the Crosstown Brewing Company. So once again, that's every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. at Crosstown Brewery. Um, Memphis music trivia is hosted by myself, along with my friend Jamal Body of the kickback podcast right here on the oem network so be sure to come out and see us i'm sure if you listen to the show you'll be well prepared to win that 50 dollars grand prize 
With that being said, let's jump on the monorail and head over to the Mud Island Mixtape. Welcome back to the Mud Island Mixtape. Um, today I want to shine a brief, very brief spotlight on the, the lesser known of the Porter Hayes songwriting team that we heard so much about today. So David Porter, um, once again, half the, half of the Porter Hayes team, he, he actually now runs a studio called Made in Memphis Entertainment right here in town, opened I believe last year. And... Uh, was not only was he a fabled songwriter and producer at Stax, but he was actually a recording artist as well, and he released several albums in the early 1970s on Stax. So well, none, of, none of them made a big splash. They really had become popular among hip-hop producers, and most especially by far is the RZA from the Wu-Tang Clan. Uh, one of my favorite kind of pastimes is to go to whosample.com and play around with whatever, what, what hip-hop samples, what songs they're using, and Swear to God, it seems like there is a half of his songs are David Porter samples, which is bizarre, but just one of them things. Anyway, today I do want to hear a David Porter track off of his 1970 album, Gritty, Groovy, and Getting It, called I Can't See I Can't See You When I Want To. All right, David Porter, I Can't See You When I Want To. I will catch you guys next time. to lose Taking chances seeing me Yet you say you love me And I say Girl, I'm gonna Keep on loving you Even though I can't see you When I want to Last night you said you meet me mm-hmm. at the same unusual time, but you were late and you had to leave early. Don't you know it blew my mind? Oh, girl, I'm suffering right here. Oh, but still, I know I'm gonna. Even though I can't see you when I want to, oh, you say we ought to stop. There's no future for you or me, yeah. But I know we want each other, and we don't care. We don't care what the outcome may be. Every time we talk to you 
Cause he just might wanna take you out Oh, and I'll have to wait Wait till he gets through Oh, but baby I'm gonna wait Another thing I know I'm gonna The preceding is an Elm production. For more information, go to theoamnetwork.com.